I'm Lauren, and this is the Open Doors Review Podcast. I'm Lauren Mowat, and this is the Open Doors Review Podcast, featuring interviews with writers, artists, and artisans living in Italy. Salve, sono Lauren Mowat. Questo è il podcast con le interviste di autori, artisti e artigiani in Italia, realizzate per Open Doors Review, una rivista di arte e letteratura in lingua inglese e italiano. To submit short stories, poetry, essays, and visual art to Open Doors, visit our website www.opendoorsreview.com. Se volete mandarci i vostri lavori di arte visuale, racconti brevi, saggi o poesie in lingua inglese o italiano, puoi trovarci sul sito www.opendoorsreview.com. Heather Johnson is the guest judge for the May 2021 issue of the Open Doors Review and a very, very dear friend of mine. She is also the author of 1500, a young adult historical novel set in Venice. After many years working as a book buyer in Boston, Heather moved to Italy, where she works as a teacher and writer. My conversation with Heather covered her decision to move to Italy, the research process of writing a book set in Venice, how cities can come into our lives like lovers, and what she learned while self-publishing her novel. So I wanted to start by just uh, going back sort of to the beginning of who is Heather Johnson? And, uh, you know, when did you move to Italy? Where were you before? And where do you live now in Italy? You know, what's interesting is that it takes my mind some work to remember Mm. often exactly when I moved here. And I don't know why that is, but uh, I believe it was in September of 2011 Mm -hmm. and or actually August of 2011. But I had come... um, in at the end of 2009 in the beginning of 2010 I came for three months as an experiment Mm. to see how I liked it and Mm -hmm. also just to have a complete break from my life in the U.S. I felt really lost I didn't have any idea of what direction I wanted to head in and I was just kind of treading water, you know, just, um, I don't want to say it, almost like killing time. But yet, because of certain events that I had had in my life, I had a lot of regret about lost time. Mm. And so it was, caused me a lot of discomfort, the sensation that I was yet again wasting time. Yeah. Anyhow, so I came for that three months and totally fell in love. Uh, then went back and was not happy to be back in the U.S. Even though I really the circumstances I was living in, I couldn't have asked for more in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. I was living with my sister and she was having a new baby and I was helping with that and I was in Seattle, which is the city I like, but I was not, I felt, I felt like my life was out elsewhere. And so, yeah, I just got, yeah, yeah. And I just got, and I was also looking for work and for the first time in my life was having problems finding work. And mm-hmm. what I saw was that 
the fact that I had spent three months in Italy as an adult was a reason for people to eliminate me as a job candidate for jobs mm. I was super qualified for because Americans see that as a almost as a form of irresponsibility. Interesting. That just, yes, that you just cut and leave and you know go traipsing around a European country for three months. Like mm. kind of how dare you? Yeah. Right? Like what why did you do this? What's the use of this? You're not yes. trustworthy. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was the sense. And I I even yeah, I even got a phone call from a company that was one of my dream companies to work for. And I had been so excited at the possibility of, of maybe getting a job with them. And the person I interviewed with called me personally to say, listen, you're perfect for the job. We didn't meet with anybody else who was better qualified or who would have been a better fit. Mm-hmm. But it makes us really nervous that you went to Italy wow. and we're afraid you'll quit and go back. So we're going to have to give the job to somebody else. Oh my God. They I, went, like I didn't have to. By Italy. Yes. <laughs> Italy laid claim to you and was like, you are not even going to get a job in the U.S. until you get back here to me. It's like a jealous boyfriend. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So that. That all of that kind of building up, um, I think also, you know, when I finally went to my dad and I said, listen, I, I would actually like to try living in Italy because of X, Y, and Z. I think those experiences really helped him be in the place of, honey, do it. Let's, mm-hmm. let's give this a try. And, you know, we're, we're here to help you you know, in the beginning to, to get a start. Yeah. Uh, I, I think if I had been, you know, turning down job opportunities that were good for me, um, Mm. instead of being denied job opportunities that were good for me, I'm, I'm, I mean, my, my parents are always very supportive, but I'm not, I'm not sure if it would have been such an easy decision for them to say, yeah, yeah. dude, try it. <laughs> it would have been a harder sell, basically. Exactly. But as it was, it was like all signs point to do this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the background of why I made the leap. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, then I ended up being in Rome for three and a half, close to four years. Mm-hmm. which I loved at first. And then um, it was like something shifted about two years in where I started to feel that the city was deteriorating mm. and that it was, there was something felt off. And I also had had, I had a, um, dynamic at work that was very stressful. Um, at the school I was working at, and mm-hmm. so when I came to um, Umbria, specifically to Foligno, just for a week to watch a friend's cat, um, I felt really intrigued and 
drawn to try a new place in Italy mm -hmm. that was close enough where I could, um, you know, still maintain my work in Rome. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I then made the leap to Foligno, directly in the center of Italy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what you were saying in the other conversation we had <laughs> for the beehive that Foligno is in the center of Italy, which mm -hmm. is which is cool. That Rome was the center of the world. Mm -hmm. It's considered the Caput Mundi, the center of the world. And mm -hmm. Foligno is very close to the, the point that is literally, there's a rock labeling the center of Italy. Yes. Have you been to that exactly. rock? Exactly. The rock? There's a, supposedly a rock in the middle of the forest that's like X marks the spot. Jeez, no, I've never even uh, heard of it. I just heard of it from some other friends living in Umbria. So now really? we have a summer goal with both. We need to go to that that's rock. That's hilarious. You never can live here long enough and know everything you need to know, even exactly where you're living. <laughs> I know. Every, every day there's like a huge discovery, like, <laughs> oh, this is where you, and, and often it's like very simple things, like where to buy some basic item that you're like, oh, this is going to make my life so much easier. But it took me five months to find the store with the plugs or whatever. Ain't it the truth? <laughs> Ain't it the truth? That Ain't is so it. true. Daily victories are possible for the smallest things. in it. Right. Um, yeah. So my, my next question is, do you think, I mean, okay, okay. So you, you came to Italy and you were teaching English from the beginning, right? And you're still teaching yes. English now. Okay. Yes. Um, and along the way, you decided to write a book mm -hmm. um, that became uh, 1500 that was published mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a book set in Italy, set in Renaissance Venice. So something that probably you would not have written um, something so Italy focused, I'm imagining, if you stayed in the US. But what I'm wondering is, do you think you would have written a book if you stayed in the US? Isn't that a fun question? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is something I think about in the sense of, had I stayed in book selling, mm -hmm. would I have just, you know, continued along that path? eventually maybe becoming a sales rep for a publisher. I always thought that that would be a, a really fun job to have. And I loved all of my sales reps when I was um, in book selling. I loved meeting with them and spending time with them. Or would that environment eventually um, have led to me writing as well, but certainly different books, different books. So uh, I think that the answer, to, I mean, the answer to your question is who knows, to be yes. honest. Yeah. But I certainly never would have written um, the kind of historically deeply researched mm. book about any part of Italy had I not uh, come to live here mm -hmm. with, uh, without a doubt. Mm 
It, yeah. it, even just from a practical point of view of having enough Italian to, mm. you know, know the search terms in Italian of yeah. what I was looking for, to look at all the Italian versions of the Wikipedia pages, for example, which are often much more detailed yes. about particular things because, you know, they know more about their history and their mm -hmm. country. And then, you know, there were, um, there have been books written about some of the characters in my book, my book that were completely written in Italian and never translated into English. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think even just the, the, from a language perspective, I had tremendously more material to work with because I, my Italian isn't great, but it's sufficient mm -hmm. for, yeah, for research purposes. And you were um, going to Venice and actually, um, you know, uh, reading and handling original texts from the Renaissance. Exactly. Um, which we, you know, went over in our previous conversation Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I'll just repeat that that was one of the most exciting experiences yeah. of my life. Yeah, it's so <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, to handle, you know, wills from over 500 years ago, mm -hmm. but also to have the capacity to chat with the archivist and, mm -hmm. you know, to approach him and say, okay, you know, there's this particular part of my plot line that has to do with this particular historical person. And I'm finding a lot of conflicting information about whether or not some of these stories are true or not. What's your personal opinion? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, that ended up being a very important conversation for me and how I... Mm, sort of contextualize things for the reader at both the very beginning and the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't felt comfortable with my Italian, I never could have just randomly had that impulse pop in my head. Oh, you know, I should get that guy's opinion about this particular thing because he certainly had an opinion. And also the fact that I could um, walk into this um, church that that plays a role in the book, mm. um, the um, you know the Church of um, Saint John and Saint Paul, and in that particular church there are some um, important works from Giovanni Bellini's early career. And the day that I walked in, the, the priest who was working the, you know, admission counter um, was actually quite a young fellow mm -hmm. um, and very approachable. And I was the only person in the church. <laughs> and so I asked him, where do you think, do you have any idea where Giovanni Bellini was buried? because I, I can't manage to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up speaking for 30 minutes <laughs> and he was so passionate 
about the life of Bellini and about, mm -hmm. you know, just the course of his artistic career. And so it, it was just really emotionally enriching to be able to interact with Venetians in Italian because yeah. then they could fully and freely express themselves and there wasn't this language barrier. And yeah. I cannot express how much, um, you know, how many doors that opened for me that I, you know, and rabbit holes that I, I just never would have been able to go down. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about the, the experience of reading your book and, you know, uh, one of the things that I loved about it is that you are just, as you're reading it, you're in Venice. You really mm. feel Venice around you. You hear the sights. You hear the sights. You hear the sound. <laughs> you know, depending depending on how many drugs you've done before taking before reading the book. <laughs> 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 but you are you are immersed in Venice, reading this book in a way that I don't think would have come across if you hadn't personally mm. gone there. You know over and over right. again to right. be in Venice and to talk to the people there because yeah. um, so many interesting characters come out in the book that I can only imagine were also inspired by maybe some people that you met. And there's also many Italian words in sure. the book that I absolutely love that are explained sure. immediately right there on the page. So it's not confusing. There's no flipping around looking for the translation. You know, it's one word here and there. So it gives a kind of taste of Italy without uh, being distracting. Right. Keep in mind, this is something that just occurred to me um, that, you know, I had taken a trip to Italy when I was 12 that was life changing. I mean, it, it just made a huge impression on me. And really, the, the kind of the main activity of that visit was my dad and I daily for about two weeks and really just spending a lot of time in Venice. So I have, you know, almost maybe an imprint from childhood yeah. of this is this incredibly magical place that was the only place I've ever been that was even better than my imagination because I had yeah. a really fervid imagination as a child and then when after I moved to Italy and I finally um, you know kind of re-engaged with the passion that I have for Venice and um, any chance I got to spend time there uh, you know I would take it yeah. that I, I spent a lot of time alone in fact uh, as an adult pretty much you know, 99% of the time I've spent in Venice, I have been completely alone. Mm. And that gives you this incredible freedom yeah. to linger where you want to linger, to, you know, take this Calais or, you know, another one to allow yourself to get lost. I really enjoy trying to pathfind in venice without the use of the phone or even a map that's really yeah. a fun game for me because also you, you like they don't work anyways um, <laughs> like, it's always like go here and then it's just water and you're like well 
Right. <laughs> Google Maps. Right. <laughs> and, and when I started writing the book, then I, the, on the trips that I was there, after I had tackled the, the main part of the, the research that I was trying to uncover, I purposely would, you know, plant myself in a particular campo, you know, what in regular Italian, they say piazza, mm-hmm. we call it a, a square, a town square. Um, I would plant myself there for an hour with a notebook mm. and just observe, Yeah, just observe. And I did that, you know, several times. Uh, which was quite Zen-like. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was almost like a form of meditation once you just, you know, because you have to be completely in the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's forcing you to to recognize only the details of the world yes. around you. Yes. And so a lot of the the details of sort of the quieter moments in the book or and she's going from point A to point B or, you know, whatever I could add to make it more evocative mm-hmm. was, you know, a lot of it came from those kind of sessions that I did. I even took a mm-hmm. nap for like an hour in a piazza. Yeah. <laughs> and that was so fun because there was, uh, it, it wasn't a very touristy piazza or there were, a mix of tourists and locals Mm -hmm. and so you know the children there that's their playground yeah (laughs) and there was this jump rope game going on and the younger mothers didn't know how to use the jump rope and so the you know the old lady had to be like step aside let me show (laughs) you how it's done and that was that was really um just a lovely thing to watch you know this is this is this is how this city operates on a daily basis for the people who live here. And that regardless of it becoming almost a sort of Disneyland or a theme park and, you know, the destruction that Airbnb causes or that over tourism causes, Mm -hmm. hopefully that part of Venice will survive, which is, for some people, it is their home. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. which you can completely forget, um, you know, if you're just visiting, you're kind of doing an in and out visit, um, Mm -hmm. like the cruise ships, or, you know, even a day trip to Venice, which is fine. I mean, if you if this is all you have, okay, however, Mm -hmm. you're going to miss so much um, about what is really Venice, what is the essence and soul of this place? You know, that should be yeah. like a, one of the questions when you come into the country, like, are you prepared to sit in a piazza and fall asleep? If not, you can, you're not granted entry. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> because, because otherwise, what are you doing here? Are you just getting a bunch of photos or are you really trying to experience this place and see what is the soul of this place? Right. I think one of the really um, fascinating aspects of moving to a foreign country and staying there for a decent period of time and then moving to different places within that 
foreign country and spending a lot of time in particular cities just because you like them Mm -hmm. is that cities become like lovers Mm. and when you live in a city versus just visiting a city you get to know that city like a lover and you either fall more deeply in love with it or you start to have a love-hate relationship with it as you do with many lovers yes you probably moved there because you idealized it in some way or maybe for work or to escape but often there's sort of some sort of idealization yeah and and then you have to go through the process of having those ideals shattered and learning all of the negative sides of that particular place. Yeah. And, and all the, the little annoying qualities that yes. you can't live with on a daily basis. Yes. But they were so great on your, you know, romantic yes. vacation. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And And how also, you know, what's that phrase that people sometimes say that like, that like people come into your life for a reason, a season or a lifetime. Mm. And I think places are like that too. Yeah. You know, someplace might be actually the perfect place for you for a particular amount of time, but then you kind of outgrow it like you, the way you outgrow friends or a job or, you know, boyfriends and marriages. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All relationships. Exactly. (laughs) Can sometimes last forever and sometimes not last forever. That they were supposed to be there at that time in your life for those lessons and that experience and for who you were at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that has, um, yeah, because I'm starting to feel with the pandemic and I think a lot of people are doing this. The pandemic is, is forcing you to look at the, um, the defects um, mm-hmm. or the flaws of, of your job, of your relationships, of the place you live yeah. in a starker light because now you can't escape or now yeah. you're doing your work at home or now um, your kids are at home all the time or yeah. um, you are stuck in your city and you can't be working in Rome half the time. So do you really live where you live or do you live actually Mm. between two different places? Do you actually have one foot in one place and one foot in another? Mm -hmm. And uh, anyhow, so I think that that's a really uh, fascinating aspect of being an expatriate uh, who, yeah, has the flexibility to to try on different cities like you try on different boyfriends yeah (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love that and I feel that that I completely uh had that experience um you know I lived 
in Rome for nine years. And that was basically most of my twenties. And that was absolutely perfect. Rome is like yeah. beautiful, but a little bit messy and crazy yeah, <laughs> and disorganized. And that was completely me. And I was looking for what I wanted to do with my life and what I wanted to do in Italy. And um, it was like the perfect place for that adventure. And now I've moved to Tuscany, which is much more kind of laid back, stable. And that's exactly what, uh, how I feel in my life right now. So that's right. uh, pretty spot on, I would say, you know, yeah, I love the passion with Rome, but couldn't last forever. It's <laughs> sort of gone crazy. <laughs> and, then, and then you may go back to a particular city, right? A particular mm-hmm. place, but for completely different reasons. Like yeah. you shifted into a new part of your life, and there was part of that city that was inaccessible to you in your previous incarnation. But mm-hmm. now that you've evolved two, three, four levels up, hopefully up, because you can devolve <laughs> down as well. <laughs> yeah. So uh, hopefully you've evolved and, and then, you know, sort of this, this layer of the city that it was almost invisible to you, like platform nine and three quarters. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Is that how you're feeling about Rome? Oh, a little bit. Yeah. Because of, as I've told you, I've just been really lucky in that I've formed these friendships with people through my teaching, my English mm-hmm. teaching through people either in journalism, uh, political journalism, in, and in the cinema world, mm-hmm. and that, uh, and writers, uh, that now if I were to go back, I would have a com- not a completely different social set. I would be able to kind of reclaim some friendships that I had to you know, let go of or that I couldn't mm-hmm. nurture in the way that I would have liked to have nurtured from a distance. Mm-hmm. So I can sort of reclaim some stuff, but that I also have these new friendships that perfectly dovetail with, you know, where I want to be going professionally with my writing. Yeah. And that I really want my book to be made into a Netflix movie. Yes. Ah, <laughs> yes. And Netflix is going to Rome. So it all goes together. Right. I wanted to ask you about your decision to self-publish the book because uh-huh. um, I'm just hearing a lot of people. I, I feel like everyone is writing right now. Uh-huh. Suddenly. Uh-huh. Um, yep. First, it was a thing that you said, I write, and people made jokes and were like, yes. oh, so you're going to be, you, you really want to make money, don't you? Ha, ha, ha. Um, right. Basically, you know, 10 years of listening to that. Um, yep. And now everyone's like, I'm also writing a book and I'm doing this project. And, all, you know, all yep. I really want to do is quit my job and write books. It's just yep. in the air. And yep. so people are looking at how to do that. You know, what uh-huh. is, do you, do you find an agent? Do you find a publisher? And a huge option out there is self-publishing. And that's the route that you chose. And so I wanted to ask you why you decided to do that and uh, and what was the process like? Yeah, my journey to self-publishing is uh, a a bit of a 
a strange one in that I actually really did not want to self-publish my book. Um, I wanted, absolutely, I wanted the, um, the stamp of approval from an established publisher of, yes, this merits being in the world. Mm. Now, I have to say, though, with that feeling that I had, I also, as a book buyer, saw an incredible amount of crap come across my desk. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things you learn is that every year there are thousands of new titles that come out that immediately sort of go nowhere. Mm -hmm. And that um, just because you, you know, your book is officially published by a particular company doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean, yeah, it doesn't mean that there aren't already 15,000 just like it, just with different animal or different city. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So the stamp of approval um, you had seen firsthand was not really an indication of, of merit or success. N- not necessarily. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. However, however, A, of course, there's a bias against self-publishing which is very legitimate Mm -hmm. um, because the, you know, really 95% of what's self-published is not, is not very good. Mm -hmm. Um, But also um, uh, because in America, self-publishing has become a huge industry not because it was this niche that needed to be opened up but because um amazon created it as a way to make money Hmm. the self-publishing boom is 100 percent uh you know a child of amazon interesting yes because they they really started this huge platform for people to pub- self-publish on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, uh, through them, yeah. Exactly. Okay, and so then what happened is it, it, you know, it basically created this entire new industry with then all the um, individual kinds of roles and, and jobs that would go with an entirely new industry. So now there are many editors, for example, who work freelance, who help, you know, people who want to self-publish their books. Mm. Um, there are many uh, places that you can go to for cover design. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are places you can go to for just proofreading. Um, there are, there's a huge industry of companies that do paid for reviews of self-published books. Mm. Um, so what has happened is that the traditional publishing world, you know, I think sort of stood back and watched this all happen for a while, sort of scratching their <laughs> heads, you know, and then this, um, but the, the, through Amazon, there's, your books are exclusively available on Amazon. Mm. And, and if a, you want a bookstore to carry 
your book, first of all, bookstores hate Amazon. And mm-hmm. second of all, they're not going to get a very, they're not going to make a very good profit, even if your book does sell, because they're having to buy the book from Amazon to, mm. to sell it in the yeah. store. Yeah. Okay. So on the one hand, there, there are people who make real legitimate money self-publishing on Amazon. And some people have even become rich. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, maybe those people with enough time and energy and dedication would have gotten published in the traditional way as well. It's mm-hmm. just that they, you know, either that they just never even tried, they thought, well, why would I share the profit with a publisher when I can make more if I do it myself? Or mm-hmm. they, they tried, you know, for years and just were not lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the traditional publishing world is watching this all happening. And I think eventually um, this company Ingram, which is a book distributor um, and in the book selling world, you have publishers, distributors, and then you have your, your bookstores. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, when you're a bookstore, you can order directly from the publisher and get a bigger discount, meaning you make more money but it takes longer for them to get you your books because they're also, you know, printing those books they are actually creating them. And then they have all these other people that they have to send big orders to. So you've got to stand in line and you could receive your books in four days, if you're lucky, maybe five or two weeks. Mm-hmm. Whereas a distributor, they buy books from the, they buy like the, the, best-selling books from publishers. They have these mm-hmm. enormous warehouses, much like an Amazon, you know, kind of inventory, as good yeah. as an Amazon inventory, if not better. And when you order from them as a bookstore, if you order by noon, you have your books the next day, even if you order like 500 books. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're all just sitting there waiting to exactly. go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, this seems like too much information, but it will help people understand. Yeah. Okay. So this company Ingram said, you know what, why don't we, why don't we dabble in this and give people um, the option to self publish their books through us because they're also legitimate publishers. Like a lot of small publishers use Ingram to publish mm-hmm. their books And yet we represent the book world exclusively and so, and libraries. And so Mm -hmm. authors would then have access to this huge network that they don't have access to through Amazon. Mm -hmm. And, and even if a bookstore doesn't choose to carry your book and a bookstore doesn't choose to carry 90% of what's published because there's no room, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a slight against you if they don't choose to carry your book. I mean, there Mm -hmm. are many of people being published by big publishers that they just said, that's not right for our clientele. We're in a Christian community in Alabama and Mm. I don't need a book. I don't need RuPaul's autobiography here. (laughs) Like, you know, you have to make those decisions, right? So 
but, 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 but mm-hmm. because bookstores do business with Ingram on a daily basis, okay, or at several times a week, yeah. it's important to be able to get things the next day if you're a bookseller. Um, anybody can go into one of a bookstore across America and order your book. Mm. You just say, do you have this? No, we don't, but we can order it for you and it'll be here in two days. Yeah. Or because Ingram created this software, which integrates with bookstore software. Mm. Almost anybody, any bookstore in the U.S. that uses that software, they can go online and they will find my book and it will say ships from our warehouse. You can either have it shipped to the store and come pick it up or it can ship directly to you. Yeah. But what that means is that it will be shipped directly from Ingram to the customer. So the store doesn't even need to touch anything. Yeah. 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 Anyhow. So. And then does the store make, you know, they get some profit on that because you bought it through their site. They make the profit, the same profit as if they had decided to sell it in the store. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like this is a way that you can get books with the same speed that you can order them through Amazon, but you're actually supporting booksellers. Yes, I would say in general, yes, mm-hmm. but you know, you have to consider, I published my book during a pandemic mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's dependent on you know, UPS and the United States postal system. And there are all sorts of backups there. Yeah. Whereas, whereas Amazon uses, you know, a lot of these independent companies to supplement their, um, their, their shipping. Yeah. But that's a whole nother topic. I would say um, that, you know, ultimately, if getting books to customers in 48 hours is your number one goal, (laughs) then you should, you should go through Amazon, but, you know, do your research and understand how horribly people are, are treated and how inhumane those warehouses are and in the, in the, the delivery drivers, what they have to go through and, you know, have an yeah. ethical reckoning with yourself uh, yeah. before you, before you, you know, make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. About it, what your, your dollars are, are supporting. Right. If you have a dream that maybe one day, even just your local bookstore would carry your book because you're a local author and mm-hmm. that's more important to you than people getting your book in 48 hours, mm. then by all means, don't publish with Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Amazon yeah. seems to, and anything they provide supports them first and foremost. Right. Yes. Um, so you're not going to have a, a, a community <laughs> or what's right. that, like a team benefit um, right. so much as you might have going a different route. Yeah. Right. Um, right. 
So let me go ahead. I was going to get back to sort of my progression to to self-publishing, but I wanted people to have the background to to understand. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What I did is I queried um, publishers and uh, agents for a year, primarily in the U.S. because I'm American and, you know, um, I know that you have familiarity with the publishing industry there. And, and my book is in many ways targeted towards American kids as well as Italian kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's only in English at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and querying is when you write, is this official process you go t- through to uh, kind of hook a particular agent to take your book on. And then that mm-hmm. agent represents your book to publishers because most publishers will not entertain individual submissions. They only entertain um, submissions that are represented by agents. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, and that was a huge learning process. Uh, there are many videos on YouTube that you can uh, watch about the whole querying process from people who work in publishing, a lot of great ideas that you can get there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sort of the process of, you know, getting rejections and, uh, you know, kind of dealing with the emotional, you know, process of that, which is not that bad, actually, to be honest. But it gets easier yeah. as, you're, as you go on. Yeah, unless you receive three rejections in a day, as I did one day, oh. and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, like, could you space it out, please? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but one of the things you learn in that whole process of looking for an agent, which is, you know, a couple months of work in and of itself, yeah, is that, you know, you learn what the trends are. So mm. the trend in YA, when I was querying was LGBTQ. Mm. Everybody wanted more LGBTQ stories. Yeah. And the next Harry Potter. Yeah. And so that's, uh, I think also a change from pre Amazon days in, in that I think publishers have to really either talk target what the culture is hungry for at the mm-hmm. moment mm. or they need to do in the way the movie industry needs to do now, unfortunately, is they have to have these blockbusters yeah. in order to stay afloat because yeah. Amazon has like, um, you know, crunched these publishers to such a degree profit wise that they've had to continually uh, merge together in order to stay afloat. And I think that they're, you know, sort of the, the, the scope of the literature that they're open to has unfortunately become narrower and narrower and narrower because uh, you need these, you know, these, these big blockbusters books or these books that like, you know, are just written at the perfect time to meet some sort of cultural moment. So um, 
But that was very helpful for me going through that process and seeing, okay, well, my book, which is this, you know, very um, niche book uh, within historical fiction that also, you know, has a horror element Mm -hmm. and is... um, uh, has a lot of, you know, philosophical themes that I certainly didn't see anybody asking for many of the philosophical themes that I put in my book, you know, mm-hmm. or for books about Cicero or yeah. <laughs> Lucretius, <laughs> you know. And so I, it, it only, I always felt from the very first day that I started adding all of those elements, I always felt, oh, there's this voice in my head that said, this could be hard to publish mm-hmm. traditionally, but yeah. I, I, I just didn't care. It just happened. I couldn't, I couldn't ignore yeah. those voices, you know, yeah. to, to put that stuff in. Anyhow, yeah. so after about a year, then when you mentioned that you, you know, knew of a publisher here in Italy, I was primed to take a chance on an Italian publisher because I really was coming to the conclusion it could take me years to get this mm-hmm. book published. And I felt that there was a timeliness of the story as well, because a lot of it has to do with um, uh, capitalism mm-hmm. and what are the downsides of capitalism, mm-hmm. which I think you know the world is really living that now. Yeah. Anyhow, so then. Uh, I, as you know, I approached this Italian publisher. They liked it immediately. It was very exciting for me. And I didn't do my diligence at the beginning Mm -hmm. in, you know, when in really finding out more about this publisher. Mm. They were very nice and I was very excited, um, but I, you know, I had to start a GoFundMe campaign to get the money for the editing because even though they had had some success with publishing books in the original language in English, they didn't have anybody on staff who could edit a book in English. Mm-hmm. And, and then I also wanted, looking at their cover style, and the style of Italian book covers is dramatically different from the style of American book covers. That is true. Yeah. American book covers are really commercial. Mm -hmm. Like they're really like colorful, bold. Yeah. Yeah. Shiny gold, you know, I mean, they're just like, look at me. 3D. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Cause they have to compete with all of these other like very poppy covers Mm -hmm. where Italian books, it is subdued. And sometimes just, excuse my language, but boring for me. (laughs) You know, I'm just like, not the word I was expecting. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
I was getting ready yeah. for more. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, you know, the American like go big or go home part of me is just like, could you have put a little bit more yeah, effort? Yeah, I know, I know. They, they often look like a book of essays from the 16th century and then it's like Absolutely. a romantic comedy. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I thought, well, if I'm going to try and sell this book to both Americans and Italians, I need like a hybrid cover. Yeah. Something that could maybe not be perfect for both places, but would be acceptable in both places. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, so I, you know, had to raise that uh, money from friends and family. And um, then when I got through with the editing and I, uh, you know, submitted the final uh, version to the publisher, we had this big um, difference of opinion on the formatting on the of the inside of the book, mm-hmm. and um, it was something that I felt was fundamental for the success of my book that the the notes be formatted in an alternative way, mm-hmm. and they um, were dead set on doing the the notes as traditional footnotes in the bottom of the page. Mm -hmm. And so this difference of opinion um, sparked something in me of, I I think I need to, you know, understand this, this company better because it, it felt that um, anybody who had any knowledge of publishing children's books and YA books or really even books in general in the contemporary market and mm. you know what you can get away with with a fiction book that you yeah. should know you cannot put footnotes in a book of fiction yeah for younger readers especially especially and I mean I, I will just describe how they are right now is there'll be a little Italian word and then there's a box right next to it practically on the page yeah um, kind of sticking out, you know, visually um, a little bit explaining what that is. So you can literally glance over, grab, you know, what is the meaning of that word in a second and then get back to the story. You're not, you're not sorting through anything. Um, So I think that is a very strong part of the book that allows for you to put in those Italian words that, you know, other writers would avoid because they don't want footnotes in a young adult book. (laughs) Right. It's like, right huge turnoff right right and also because I was you know talking about a lot of stuff like there was references to a lot of stuff that American children never get exposed to or Mm, at least I was never exposed to where Italian children are exposed to a lot of it especially by the time they're teenagers and I could probably Mm -hmm. take out literally half of the footnotes for mm-hmm. the Italian version, because they just simply learn about those things in school. Yeah. So it was essential, not only that I was able to format in the way that I wanted them to, um, but that that, that formatting um, was going to help give American teenagers the context that they needed to understand a lot of the references. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I, I stole that formatting from a publisher that I love called Dorling Kindersley, which is a British publisher, and they do these fantastic um, nonfiction books primarily. Um, mm -hmm. And these huge, um, I know you've probably seen them, they're almost always white, Mm. And they're history books and they're super visual and they yeah. have all of these text boxes and yeah. they, they were doing that before the internet had even started. Yeah. Um, and they just understood that, that to make history um, sort of more like a spoonful of um, here's a spoonful of this famous person. Here's a spoonful mm -hmm. of this shocking story you know that yeah. that you have to give it in bite-sized portions um, but you have to make it visually interesting yeah anyhow so this was like a huge red flag that i was having to have this fight yeah and um and so then what i discovered is that this particular publisher and this is totally not something unique is yet another um, like child of the Amazon publishing industry hmm. because their profit, like their, how their scheme is set up is primarily to sell books over the internet through Amazon. Huh. And that it's not very important to them to try to get books into bookstores because it's riskier because bookstores mm -hmm. want to be able to return the books if they don't sell. Yeah. I, I think these, you know, these people really enjoy what they're doing and they're very yeah. excited about what they're doing. But I think um, it's, uh, how do I want to say it? Um, not a misrepresentation, but that, uh, a lot of um, authors looking to get their books published would never think to ask, um, do you have any experience in, re in publishing, in the traditional mm -hmm. publishing world? What, you know, what's your background? They think, yeah. you know, you just make the assumption if it's a publisher that, that they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet... Lauren, there are hundreds, if not thousands of these small publishers now. Yeah. yeah. That don't have any experience. And that they're, they're becoming kind of a middleman in the self-publishing world. You got it. <clears throat> it's a, it's a kind of a, a business that wouldn't exist if Amazon didn't exist. Mm, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Anyhow. So all of this as I, you know, started to piece things together, I panicked and I thought, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to kill the chances of my book actually selling. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I, as a bookseller, you know, for 13 years that specialized in children's literature, you know, you have a good idea of what will kill a book. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, the, the thing about the footnotes would kill it, but also it made me really nervous realizing that, you know, nobody at this company had any, you know, I, I, that I literally had dramatically more experience mm. um, than they did. Mm -hmm. And I also discovered 
that they were using the way I found out about Ingram and that they were now doing self-publishing was he, you know, the, my contact there told me that, that they use Ingram in the U S and I said, Oh, that's great. I love Ingram. I worked with them every day. You know, it gave me a lot of comfort, but then I thought, well, I should investigate that. (laughs) How are they using Ingram? And so when I started to investigate, what I realized is that Ingram has, has two publishing paths. The first path, which they've had for a long time, is if you're a small independent publisher, you can publish, meaning print, have your books printed and distributed by Ingram. Mm -hmm. And because your publisher that, let's say you have, what is it? I think you only need to have like maybe 20 titles, 20, yeah, 20 titles. Um, you know, that you're going to be doing business with them in volume. Mm-hmm. And so you get a, a deeper discount, meaning that you get mm-hmm. a bigger profit. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I realized that this Italian publisher um, didn't have 20 titles that they were doing through Ingram because they would need to be, you know, books that were selling in America versus selling mm-hmm. in Italy. Yeah, yeah. And so what I um, came to is that they were using actually the self-publishing wing of Ingram. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, why would I use a publisher to publish my book through a self-publishing platform? Why Mm -hmm. wouldn't I just do that? Because I'm going to be making... 10% 10% off of what they're making instead of 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it was this like huge compounding of things. And I, I really started to feel like, okay, I have to see if I can get out of this contract because mm-hmm. I've, I've lost faith. And um, now my choices are go back to the, you know, square one and start querying publishers again, Mm -hmm. or just publish it on my own. And because um, many friends and family had donated to this GoFundMe campaign for the editing and the cover design over, you know, I think I made in the end, you know, it was like, around 2000 I mean it was it was enough it was enough not only to cover the editing and the cover design but also all of the permissions that I never knew I was gonna have to to do uh how much they would cost and so in permissions with the fonts that you use because you have to buy those permissions And then quotes that you had, right? Exactly. I had to, University of Chicago Press, I had to pay $400 to. So the permissions in and of themselves were probably about $750. Yeah. Um, So I literally had just enough. And then, you know, you do pay to publish through Ingram, but I'm telling you, it's nothing. Like Mm. it's literally something like, you know, I probably in the end with the edits that I did, 
uh, I paid maybe $125. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, something really ridiculously because it's print on demand, which means, yeah. that, you know, that they, they'll print like 10 copies of your book and let those sell and then they'll print another 10 copies, mm -hmm. but it's dramatically less risky for them and for you. Yeah. So that's, that's how self-publishing works at its, in its most basic form is that your book isn't printed till somebody orders it. Mm -hmm. um, anyhow, and I think you can credit Amazon with probably inventing that. So that, you know, that's a, a good thing as far as, you know, taking a lot of risk out of um, the whole concept itself is, yeah. you know, this print on demand technology that didn't exist before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's opened up a whole new world right. uh, in the publishing right. industry. Yeah. Right. Um, so I oh, decided, yeah, yeah, I decided to self-publish because I felt was unfair to the people who contributed um, mm. to that GoFundMe campaign for me to go back to the drawing board and maybe mm. never succeed in mm. publishing my book. Mm. And you so had kind of gone through a lot of, uh, you'd already sort of paid for your own editing and your own mm -hmm. cover. Mm -hmm. um, so you were kind mm -hmm. of already halfway there. Uh, yes. In a way you might not have done had right. it not been for this um, Italian publishing house. Right. Um, it kind of set you up to just take that self-publishing step on your own because otherwise, yes. I mean, there's a lot of things that you had to do beyond writing, you know, the entire book and doing all the research. Then you had to follow the, the editing, the formatting, mm -hmm. all of those things that took a mm -hmm. lot of time uh, and, and money as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So on the one hand, I'm, you know, it's a great relief to finally get it out there. Uh, I ended up doing the formatting myself. I would not recommend that to anybody. It took me a month of sitting on my couch 12 hours a day and it was maddening. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually didn't have the money for that. And uh, I, you know, calculate that into your cost as well. Somebody mm -hmm. to professionally format the interior. Um, but you know, I know that, um, my book is never going to sell in the way that it could sell had a, a real publisher been behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, to some extent, maybe even without just having the veneer of a real publisher who, you know, for me, wasn't really a real publisher, but people mm -hmm. don't know. They don't yeah. know the difference. You know, that's only something I'm able to recognize or somebody who's been inside the, the industry is able to recognize, but you know, 99% of the, you know, the people on the earth, they could pick up, you know, a book from Amici press, which I, you know, came up that mm -hmm. name as like an imprint mm -hmm. uh, and think, and think that I'm a legitimate, legitimate, publisher and not realize that I had self-published it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think what I would say to anybody 
considering self-publishing is that um, what are your goals? Do you want to just merely make this book available to your friends and family and you'll mm -hmm. be happy just to have it out there and have, you know, it in the possession of, you know, the people you love and care about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your um, audience that you can reach with whatever platforms yeah. you can. Uh, right. On. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, do you want the possibility of mass recognition or even a niche recognition? Mm -hmm. Like, let's say you've written a mystery novel. Mm -hmm. Do you want, do you want this, you know, the small possibility that your mystery novel could be big with people who love mystery novels? All right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If that's something that you're really dead set on, you know, I think you need to dedicate uh, some time to trying to get it published in the traditional way. Also, mm -hmm. because I think that you never know. I mean, you could get lucky. I mean, it could yeah. merit, you know, that stamp of approval. And if it does merit that stamp of approval, there's this mechanism behind getting your book recognized that you just can't, no money can buy because it's years and years of experience that, you know, and publishers are, you know, this is, a profession that's hundreds of years yeah. old they know what they're doing yeah uh, real publishers do um so i i would actually never encourage anyone to just automatically self-publish mm. uh, I, I think if you're going to take all the time and energy to write a book which is a huge accomplishment i mean mm -hmm. massive um Query, 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 get to know what's hot, what's out there, what people want, what people are looking for. Because maybe in, you know, 2019, in January of, you know, 2019, uh, mm -hmm. you wrote a YALGBTQ book. Maybe you yeah. wrote exactly what the market is asking for. And so heaven forbid you self-publish that? No. No. But be aware of, of yes. the fact that these are trends. You know, nobody yes. is publishing because they are, uh, yes. you know, Hemingway and whatever they write right. is literature and it's got to be out there in right. the world. You know, it's, it's right. a product at this yes. point. You know, like it can be yes. literature eventually. But at the moment, right. it's going to be taken and sold. It's a product. So yes. what product are you, are you selling? Which is so difficult. I mean, of course, you cannot at all think about that when you are writing. Otherwise, yes. you're going to write something pretty lame <laughs> and right. formulaic and, and right. not creative. You have to let your right. own creativity drive you and then mm -hmm. take what you've made and mm -hmm. see how to, to sell it in the right way. Yes. Um, I'm thinking right now of this. Um, story I heard uh, listening to a podcast somewhere. I think I want to say Tim Ferriss <laughs> podcast, um, but that uh, the book *Sapiens*, 
mm-hmm. uh, by Yuval Noah Harari was actually published like years and years ago and was just went absolutely nowhere and no one was interested in it. It sold like a thousand copies or something, just nothing. And then they found a new agent and a new publisher with it, changed the title to Sapiens. I can't remember what the title was originally. And uh, it has now sold more than 12 million copies around the world. And classic. The same book, it's the same author. Uh, It's just packaged in a new way. And, and yep. both, I believe, both were published with publishers. You know, they were just mm-hmm. sort of not marketed in the yes. right way. And maybe it wasn't the right time also. It's kind yes. of like the relationship. Got, got to get yes. the timing right. <laughs> right. It, um, it very similar thing happened to um, Paulo Coelho, who oh, wrote yeah. The Alchemist. Yeah. Almost identical, except like his, <laughs> The Alchemist with the first publisher it sold two copies. Oh my gosh. To the same person. <laughs> it was like his mother or something, you know. <laughs> Just some random person that went in oh and bought gosh. it. And oh then like gosh. two weeks later, the random person went back and bought another copy. One more. And it was like a spectacular failure. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And then yeah, he just scratched his head for a while because he thought, gosh, I, I actually thought that that thing might sell. And he approached another publisher and literally said, this was a spectacular failure. It didn't sell at all, but I believe in it. And the publisher read it and was like, yeah, we'll publish it, which is crazy wow. when you right, think about right. it. How did that even happen? Like right. people can't get published when they're at neutral. And he was like, I have right. failed. And they're like, we'll take you on. Like, okay. Totally. <laughs> totally. And then it, you know, became this worldwide phenomenon that was on the yeah. New York Times bestseller list for years. Yeah. Yeah. Years. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh so gosh. I almost think it's like a rite of passage that, yeah. that you, you're cheating yourself of kind of, um, do you believe in your book or not? Mm. Because if you really believe in your book, you will try to get it traditionally published. Like you'll Mm -hmm. go through that rejection. Mm -hmm. You'll, you know, you'll go through the hours of, you know, sifting through hundreds of agents to see if they're open to your kind of book. Um, you'll write those letters. You'll watch those YouTube videos. Are you willing to do that? Because mm-hmm. I think if you are, then you're really committed to what you've created. Mm-hmm. If in the end you end up self-publishing anyway, at least ultimately you, you, you know you really believe in it. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what happens really. Just that you believe in it is all that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I think you would be... Um, cheating yourself on a classic aspect of being a writer uh, if you don't go through that process. Yeah, yeah. So are you working on another book now? Okay, when I go for a walk and I, you know, can play with it in my mind, yes. But unfortunately, you know, due to the pandemic, Mm -hmm. I, um, I have to focus on uh, paying my rent and paying my bills and, you know, bringing in 
money through more traditionally um, lucrative, immediately lucrative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This month lucrative, not Things. five years from now. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. However, when I when I take the time to stop and think, you know, take a deep breath and think, well, what would I really like to be doing right now? What would I really like to be doing in 2021, especially when enough people get vaccinated and mm -hmm. we can move about the world? Um, you know, what I'd ultimately like to be doing is traveling to do the research for the next book. Yeah. 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 Well, hopefully yeah. that will be sooner, ra sooner rather than later. Rather than we'll later. As vague as possible. Universe, <laughs> do what you will. With that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Well, I feel like I just have even more questions bubbling in my brain for you, but I'm going to... <laughs> stop then <laughs> for the moment yeah um, so that you know before we have another technical failure of some kind mm -hmm. um, right and because I I want to do my test wait a, I want to do the game <laughs> yeah exactly. he's gonna do the game okay <laughs> so I'm going to you know you may have heard of this before I'm going to say a word and I want you to say the word that you <laughs> that comes to mind first <laughs> Oh, oh god oh god okay let me get yeah. ready let yeah. me, okay so we're gonna start with okay let's see um cobblestone cobblestone london ambition me solitude me new york love Fun. Okay, friends is the first thing that came into my mm. head. Understand. Mm. I had to, I, I literally did draw a blank. And yeah. it could be because he's right next to me, but Bobo. <laughs> <laughs> the dog. <laughs> my dog. Perfect. <laughs> Probably looking at you like, <laughs> trying to understand why you've been talking to yourself this whole time. I, well, I, think, <laughs> I think you and your dog spend a lot of time trying to understand one another because yeah. you don't have, I mean, you have language, but you know, yeah. he can understand what you say, but you're really, I'm really dependent on his body language. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's a, <laughs> a random one. Julius Caesar. <gasps> Ooh, power-hungry badass. <laughs> Excellent. Pizza. Mm, yummy. Editing. Hmm. Interesting is the first full word that came mm -hmm. to my head. Hmm. Yeah. The process is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, publishing. Hmm. In peril leading to Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. Oh God. Okay. So the first word that came to my head is psychopath, <laughs> but, 
<laughs> you know, you have to you take that with a huge boulder of salt because obviously I, you know, I have a lot of antipathy built up over mm -hmm. a long period of time. If I were, you know, to give myself a few more, you know, seconds to maybe define that a little bit better, mm -hmm. I would probably say consciously a well-intentioned psychopath, but a psychopath non nonetheless. <laughs> clarification that's the nicest i could come up with it's not his fault but he's insane sorry jeff uh, yeah i hope you don't listen to this or maybe you should i don't know um okay cucumber are better than men <laughs> I, I only say that because I had a pack of playing cards that were titled Cucumbers Are Better Than Men. Oh my gosh. Years <sighs> and years ago, but I can't remember if they were normal playing cards and it just said that on the design side or if it was like a game, but I wow. remember the title. Yeah. It's like the yeah. most random but amazing pack of cards it's totally from experience now we have to find right totally from experience and not so much from my unconscious just, yeah yeah it's a you know. yeah just to be clear yeah 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 <laughs> mm, cat hmm. ah so yeah kitty but because there's a cat in my building that goes yeah. by the name of kitty yeah that's a little bit of a yeah. boring one she's just the first representation yeah yeah mm, teach teach <sighs> unsung unsung mm. mm -hmm. uh, read mm. not enough Dream. Always. Friend. You! <laughs> Venice. Oh, my heart. Mm. And home. Here. I think I mean Italy in general. Yeah. 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 Oh, I mean, that was perfect. the first word that came. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ooh, you've good passed. Game. <laughs> good game. I thought they were all going to end up like cucumbers are better than men. Like I thought it was all going to be Freudian sex related. Right, exactly. Like, oh, that was fun. That was fun. Uh, you, you need to do that with all of your, I yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun. so fun. Yeah, I've, I've actually, you know, it was nice to be asked to go through that publishing process mm. and what not because I've thought to myself, God, I wish um, I wish that people knew these things who were thinking about yeah. self publishing. Like there there's it's a big decision to make and, and as somebody who is a book buyer, 
you know, I'd hate the idea of somebody self-publishing a book that that actually might have been picked up by a real publisher. Yeah, it, yeah. that is actually heartbreaking to me because as a book buyer, you know, it's not going to come across my desk if it's self-published, but if yeah. it's published, published, you know, it might not only come across my desk in the form of a catalog, but my sales rep might actually say, hey, I think this might work in your store. Yeah, you know, yeah. Literally, you know, represented There's by a real More person. of a chance. I yeah. mean, are you, do you feel that you're happy with your decision? I feel that um, it's kind of like how it was meant to happen. Mm. However, um, you know, when I think about the Italian version, um, mm. I would like to find it, uh, an Italian publisher. Yeah. Italian yeah. Version. Also because I, I had um, a very close Italian friend whose English is really great. And she read it and she loved it. Mm-hmm. And she said, I think this is a really important book. And I think you need to find a, an Italian publisher. I think an Italian publisher will publish this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that fits in a way with my original instinct after doing that year of querying, mm. you know, gosh, maybe if I could find an Italian publisher. And then you stepped in and it was like, it's interesting when you think about it, even though I think that that was a really important moment for me to claim mm, as, mm-hmm. as a person with the experiences that I've had and the privileges that I had working in the book industry mm. to be able to recognize, you know, oh man, you're this little thing you've put all this time and energy into you know, be like the, the Sapiens guy or Paulo mm-hmm. Coelho, you know, that, that the rights to my book could have been locked up with mm. this publisher who wasn't doing by it, you know, sort of in the way that they could have for, yeah. you know, I think it was like five years or something, that contract. Yeah. And I would have had to wait. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For that time period before I could pass it by someone else and oh what a tragedy that would have been. Yeah. So yeah. I, in a way it felt like and I remember the tension and the anxiety I had over the decision but also the sense of like self-empowerment I mm-hmm. felt when I carefully composed the email to say listen here's the way I see things after I've done this research. Mm -hmm. And if you can sell 10 times more copies of my book than I can on my own, if you're confident you can do that, let's go forward. Mm. But if you're not confident that you can sell 10 times um, uh, more copies than I can do on my own, I would ask you to release me from this contract to be able to phrase things in that way, I think as a woman is, mm. it takes men off guard mm-hmm. beca- because they don't um, expect that kind of very rational yeah. approach. Yeah, like, are you gonna sell my book? Um, not, oh, it would be such an honor if you sold my book. Yeah. <laughs> More like, are you gonna do right by me? Can you, yeah. you know, can you? Are, do you yeah. have the ability and the resources to do that? 
Otherwise yeah. I have to make a different business decision. Yeah. I exactly. Think that's powerful. exactly. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, you know, I think probably years from now I'll look back at that moment and uh, it will, you know, it could even be a dividing line between um, are you a girl or are you a woman? Mm. Mm, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, are you willing to um, stand on the mountain of your experiences and, you know, tell, tell someone else, you know, boy, I have a mm -hmm. lot more experience than you do. And yet mm -hmm. I'm giving you the opportunity, you know, to represent my book out in the world. But because I've signed this contract, I'm willing to stand by it. If, you know, you're going to step up to the plate and make it happen. But if yeah. not, I'm going to take my experience and, yeah. you know, do better by this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that women aren't, you know... There's so many women across the world that aren't raised in a culture that, um, you know, that, you know, allows them the capacity to kind of get to that point and make those mm -hmm. kinds of statements. And I do think that um, now that I've traveled somewhat, I've been exposed to a variety of, you know, people from different places, um, that uh, there's still a long way to go, but mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that I grew up in America during the time frame that I did. Mm, yeah, for, for the opportunities you were able to take for yourself. Yeah, and the kind of men that I was surrounded by a lot of the time, not always, but, um, you know, and maybe even more than other women, uh, maybe because I've worked in the bookselling industry or maybe because I lived in Boston because that's something that's coming up in some Netflix documentaries I'm watching like, whoa, God, don't mess up with a Bostonian woman. Holy moly. <laughs> Ooh, wee. Like they will, oh yeah, they will, they are not afraid of you. They're yeah. not afraid. <laughs> I mean, they're, wow. So amazing. Yeah. That, I mean, don't, realize the privileges that you have mm. unless you put yourself in a different culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then they're sort of highlighted yeah. by the contrast. Yeah. 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 And also the privileges you didn't have yeah. are highlighted. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. It goes both ways. <laughs> yeah. Decent fruits and vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, well, yeah. I love that last point. This was, was fun. so great. So thank yeah. you again. And thank you. I will talk to you soon. 1500 by Heather Jane Johnson can be purchased online around the world. Thank you for listening. And for more information on the Open Doors Review and how to submit your own writing and visual art, visit our website, www.opendoorsreview.com.